Hello, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Our guest for this episode is Corey Anderson, who is Executive Vice President of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation in Little Rock, Arkansas. Winthrop Rockefeller is a private foundation committed to funding movement building, public policy, and systems change that advances economic, educational, social, and racial equity for all Arkansans. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So uh, thank you for joining us, Corey. Um, And it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I was just saying uh, earlier that you have had a remarkable career. Um, currently, you had the foundation's program team and uh, grant-making efforts. Yes, or well, has so, that changed? So that that's that's actually changed. Uh, that 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 chief innovation officer title is is actually a brand new title, mm-hmm. uh, and it's related to something I think that's that's actually related to this conversation. So, uh, for the first time in several decades, the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation we changed our mission statement. And so we've got this wonderful new mission statement that's about the relentless pursuit of educational equity, economic equity, social, ethnic, and racial equity for all our Kansans. Mm. So we've got this renewed vigor, this renewed energy around closing gaps and making investments in places that have been marginalized or left aside uh, over the course of the last few decades. And, And the innovation work is really about finding the edge of how you do that. So not just innovation in terms of technology or things like that, but that's a part of it, right? And so how do we you know, connect artificial intelligence and all those sorts of things to the lives of people that have been disconnected from technology, period? So it's that kind of innovation. Uh, but it's also innovation in thinking about how we come up with new ideas. Uh, and as we get into the conversation about narrative, uh, one of the things that we know is if we're going to relentlessly pursue equity, if we're going to get to sort of our goals around an equitable state, then a big part of what we have to do is change the story that we tell ourselves in Arkansas. That's an incredible mission statement. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived? What was the process, the evolution for saying, you know, you're uh, a highly respected foundation d- doing great things in terms of your grant making and the the areas that you support. So, what was that process? How did how did that come to pass? Sure. So, for for the past ten years, uh, we had been working under a strategic plan called Moving the Needle, um, and and as even as the title suggests, uh, the work that we did, the change that we saw underneath that plan was incremental change. Uh, When we looked back at it, uh, in particular our board, because they led us in this process, when we looked back at it, we were proud of it, we were excited about it, but we were dissatisfied with the pace of change. And and as our board did that work over the course of a year, uh, I think what they decided was that if we're going to, if we're going to get to a pace of change that's satisfactory to us, then we really had to, to, to shoot even further than we were shooting, uh, be even more bold than we had been, uh, be even uh, more articulate about the populations and the places and the people that we really had to be focusing on. Uh, just to go from, you know, 
sort of uh, reforming things to transforming things. So there's 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 a piece in the plan uh, that talks about a focus on systems, and you know it may not be enough uh, again just to nibble around the edges of systems change. We may actually need to dismantle some systems that aren't working, and and replace them whole cloth with new systems. Uh, and so again, as you think about uh, how people go about doing their work day to day, uh, some of the challenge is is they they have a particular vision of the potential for impact of whatever system they're working in, uh, and if they don't really think that the system can change a person or can support a person to a larger goal, uh, they don't work the system to do that. So given your substantial portfolio, what will be your top priorities in taking on this work and uh, this uh, vision and mission for the foundation? Sure. I, I, I think I'd, I'd answer that by changing the question just a little sure. bit, uh, only because we don't have a substantial portfolio. Uh, we're, we're a small, state-focused foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a big name uh, the, with the Rockefeller right. Foundation, but you know, we're, we're a small piece of, uh, of, of the, the, the larger sort of Rockefeller philanthropic family. That's a whole bunch of you know, uh, things that aren't really connected to each other. Uh, so our, our piece of it is actually pretty small and pretty discreet. But uh, makes an impact and, for those who well, receive but, the support. But yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely does. And and also what it does, though, is it is it means that everything that we do, we have to do in partnership with folks, right? So everything that we do uh, when we're working at our best uh, is informed by community, um, is 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 impacted and, and 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 designed in partnership with the people that it might ultimately impact. Um, everything that we do, uh, to be honest with you, most of it is done through some other organization, an advocacy organization, a community change organization, a research organization, a communications organization. Um, we just get sort of the benefit. Uh, uh, of being able to, to to pull things together and pull people together with the few resources that we have, um, and and you're right uh, as we've talked about you know this big goal of equity in Arkansas, um, we have to admit to people uh, that it may sound like hyperbole, uh, but for us it's not hyperbole uh, that you know there are folks in this state you know all over the state. Uh, that actually believe that we can be a different place. Uh, there are communities in the state that have proven that over time they can be different communities. And we believe, you know, with a concerted effort, with a focused effort, that you can roll some of that stuff up to where things start to change uh, at a larger scale or at scale, as we talk about in philanthropy. Absolutely. I just interviewed uh, Mayor Scott and just listening to him and and his thoughts about equity and and, and what he's looking to do um, during his term is, I thought was refreshing. Uh, I also love what you're talking about. Um, you know, a lot of times when you're dealing with foundations, it's kind of like, this is our mission. You've got to fit the specifics of our mission in terms of, uh, being able to get funding, which oftentimes results, uh, with, folding your program to meet that because you need the dollars. So I think it's great that you're talking about a collaborative approach with community, with the people that are most affected, thinking about how do you get the message out 
right? So, um, so priorities. Yep. We got it. Smaller foundation, big impact, yeah. thinking a lot yeah. about uh, issues of equity and, and transformational work uh, that you'll be undertaking in, Absolutely. Your, in your role. Well, some, and some of the exciting things that we're, again, new mission, relentless pursuit, equity in those three big buckets, some of the exciting things that we're able to to get talk about. And when I say new, I mean like literally brand new. Like sure. we hadn't even, the, the public release of it, uh, it will be post, is post this this live conversation. So it'll be, it's next week. Uh, but we've been talking about it with people. Um, and we, we actually call it a strategic direction, again, for the very reason that you're talking about. We don't have a plan yet. We haven't, we haven't decided that in economic equity, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, we've actually commissioned on the economic side of this work, we've actually commissioned some research that we call the ABCs of equity. Um, we've got one report uh, that's called the ALICE report. Uh, ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, A-L-I-C-E. Uh, the United Ways around this country have done this for states. And, and what ALICE does is it enumerates the number of people in your state, in your county, in your city who are working multiple jobs, working as hard as they can, but still aren't earning enough money to take care of their basic needs. Again, this is about changing this narrative that we have about people uh, that we see as struggling or people that we think are marginalized uh, and, and, and shifting the conversation to, well, gosh, you ought to work harder to, well, maybe we've got some systemic things that are happening here that are actually preventing people, no matter how hard they work, from actually getting ahead. In Arkansas, for example, 70% of the jobs pay below a living wage or less. So that means that, that if you're not lucky enough to have one of those 30% of the jobs, it doesn't make any difference how hard you work. That's right. You're going to have to move to find a job that pays a living wage. So in economic equity, now we're talking about uh, everybody in Arkansas making a living wage, everybody living in a thriving economy. Uh, and, and that's not just a thriving city economy. That's maybe a thriving neighborhood economy. Lots of us live in neighborhoods with thriving economies, and we enjoy the benefits of that. We enjoy being able to go to the store and go have entertainment and all of those things right there in our own neighborhoods. Everybody should have that opportunity at some level. And then we're talking about uh, building generational wealth, and that, and that may be the most exciting thing. Exactly. Is that absolutely it's about getting kids better educated. Absolutely it's about people getting better jobs. Uh, but when you talk about building wealth, uh, as far as I know, I hadn't found a fourth one yet, but there are only a couple ways to build wealth. One is to have a house or some land that's going to appreciate in value. The second is to own your own business that you'll work really hard and it'll appreciate in value. And the third is to own part of somebody else's business. You've got stocks, equity in somebody else's business. And I hadn't figured out any, any other way to build wealth other than those three things. And so the question is, again, for, for communities that have been systemically excluded from those three things. And when I say systemically, I'm talking about public policy. It's exclusively. For communities that have been systemically excluded from those things, how do we begin to close those gaps? Absolutely, we gotta change public policy. We wanna invest more in women and minority-owned businesses. We wanna give people coming back from prison the opportunity, uh, not just to get educated, but to get better jobs, so breaking down some of those barriers, but also to start their own businesses uh, and begin to figure out how you stack some of these things up. Uh, we live in a rural state in Arkansas where a lot of the wealth is in the land. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you begin to bring some of that back to 
the people that originally owned it or, or however you might configure it. So as you can see, again, we've got things that seem sort of like hyperbole and this big vision, uh, but we also have to, and, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to be working with lots of people uh, to figure those things out. So in terms of public policy, I, I, I think that's a, um, an important piece to bring up. Do you envision that your role will be a bridge between um, philanthropy, community, to and with government? Because obviously they're a critical partner because the word resource, right? Yes. And sometimes there are very limited resources and the only way to create additional resources may involve taxes, which certainly may impact the people that and the communities Absolutely. that you're looking to serve. So how, how are you thinking about public policy? So in the, in the third bucket that I talked about, the social, ethnic, and racial equity, uh, what we've begun talking about, again, with our partners, with people that we've worked with for a long time, and also people that are new to us, is building a movement for equity in Arkansas. And the way that I shorthand that, there are only 3 million people, give or take, in Arkansas. That's it. We're, we're a really small state. Uh, there is the joke is, you know, we're we're sort of a half degree of separation from everybody. Right. You know, we walk in this. We, we, we were just at uh, at the church service together. You know, I knew a quarter of the people in there. Not well, we for say any that in the black reason. community. too. Yes, that's right. Well, it, 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 well it, so, yeah, if you, if you just think about the black community, it's probably there is there are probably no degrees of separation right. one way or the other. But even amongst everybody in the state. Right. There I, somebody will do the research. There's there's the. Between the, the, the person that does the janitorial work here at the Clinton School and the governor of Arkansas, I, I would bet you there's one person. There's one degree of separation. And, that, and that's how it is all over the state. So when we talk about building a movement, what we're suggesting, and again, haven't said how, figured out, don't really know. But the way that I shorthand that is, you know, I want 300,000 people in Arkansas to be able to sit and have uh, an informed, uh, intelligent, action-oriented conversation about equity and how you get there, how, how we got to where we are, so have an understanding of the historic barriers uh, and legacies of unfairness that sort of got us where we are, understand that, and, and then be able to have a conversation about how we move forward from those things. And when I say 300,000 people, it doesn't really matter to me who whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a police officer, a judge, a teacher, a guy that runs a sanitation truck, it doesn't matter who. I just want more people to be able to have those action-oriented conversations uh, because that's when you get to these changes in public policy. Because if, if more people uh, have this frame and have this understanding that the, the more work we do, to, to close the gaps between African-American boys and majority boys in third grade reading, that the better the education system gets for everybody, like the more people understand that, that that's going to impact who they vote for for school board. That's going to impact who they vote for on the quorum court. That's going to impact who runs for state representative and when they get down to the state capitol, how they see public policies including taxes and everything else that impacts us. So again, I continue to use the word hyperbole because it sort of sounds like that, but but if you if you track particularly large changes in public policy, 
that's the only way we got to those things as a country, is that, back to the narrative, people began to accept and propagate different narratives about who deserves what, about how people are interconnected, and about what they were able to do as individuals to impact that. The dominant narrative now is, I can't do anything as an individual, doesn't matter to me anyway, that doesn't impact me. Like, we have to change that narrative. And it's also the process that you're describing is very participatory, right? We're even seeing this in New York City where, in the past, elected officials would get a pot of money, they would dole it out, you know, sometimes to organizations that are sort of the go-to yes. organizations and then organizations that are doing, that are indigenous to communities that are running on a shoestring budget, oftentimes are not able to compete for those dollars. But what's exciting about New York City, the, the city council is doing this participatory budgeting wow. in districts uh-huh. where community folks get to come together and talk about what they'd like to see, what they see as the needs. Sure. And it's a very exciting way. And I think that's exciting because I do think there's a lot of cynicism about Absolutely. policy and that it's already set up for them to fail, for, for people particularly who are at the margins to Absolutely. fail. I want to uh, shift a little bit because sure. I can talk to you about philanthropy a lot. I have a lots, <laughs> lots of thoughts and as about you say, it. I could talk about it all day long. It's a uh, passion. And, and, and certainly... Um, just one other thing, I also think that, you know, looking at MWBEs when you're talking about building wealth mm-hmm. and um, um, uh, small businesses, which <laughs> particularly in communities of color are are yes. the innovators, right. they are uh, the employers in communities, so they are sectors that are extremely important, as well as the not-for-profit sector and yep. the health sector and how do you create the innovation, which it sounds like the process that you're um, – the word that popped up in my head when you um, were talking about it is that that's how you innovate. That's how communities will need to innovate by bringing people on. It may be uncomfortable conversations. You may have to address things like implicit bias and to demonstrate how public policy supported those divides. So I can't wait to hear more about that. We'll be right back with Corey Anderson after this break. Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of black male humanity in America through an intimate, intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions. They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need saviors, they need believers. We're back with Corey Anderson, Executive Vice President of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation in Little Rock, Arkansas. I want to switch a little bit to um, talking particularly about black boys Uh and men. Um, And in philanthropy, what are the limitations in terms of 
addressing the vast needs of black boys and men um, in this country. What can philanthropy do and what are the limitations? What what are they just not equipped to do? Sure. So the, the way that I think about that, uh, we've got some work that we're doing here, uh, right here in Little Rock, and it's called the Central Arkansas Boys and Men Opportunity and Success Team. Uh, so Central Arkansas BMOST uh, is, our, is our fun acronym for it. And what BMOST is, uh, it's an organization of organizations. So we've got a whole cadre of, of nonprofits, uh, lots of them, most of them actually funded by the city of Little Rock. So, uh, you know, gosh, um, for uh, about 25 years now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the city of Little Rock uh, has invested um, a portion of a dedicated sales tax to what we call prevention, intervention, and treatment programs. Started. Which money never goes through to prevention. A- a- absolutely. And so, <laughs> not to shout out philanthropy yeah. for not supporting them. Uh, well, that that this it's the truth of it. Um, and 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 the way that we got to this may be a roundabout story, but the way that we got to that half cent sales tax. Um, uh, is that 20, more than 25 years ago, 27, 28, you, we in Little Rock, uh, like a lot of Midwestern cities, went through this spasm of gang violence. Okay? And what we were able to do in the throes of that is, is suggest to people that the, the gang violence that, you know, again, that showed up in communities and then showed up in the media, uh, and, and for sure the face of it was, was young black boys at that time, it was just black boys at that time here, um, that, that it was not necessarily that all of a sudden young black men decided they would respond to life in this violent way. That, that there were, that, that, that the opening that allowed gang violence to propagate uh, was the result of decades of disinvestment in community programs, in communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and while, you, while you can't take away you know, somebody's responsibility for committing a crime, you can sort of grab a much broader view of the circumstances that led to those circumstances. And we were able... Uh, by working together with nonprofits that existed at that time, by working together with the city at that time, we were able to suggest to to everybody in Little Rock, black, white, otherwise, people that lived in these communities, people that didn't, that the way out of this was was a public policy answer. And and part of that answer got to be this half-cent sales tax that people voted for and passed, and now we're investing uh, lots of resources every year in these nonprofit programs. So... Fast forward 25 years, lots of these programs are working specifically still uh, with black and Latino and low-income young men. And so BMOST is an effort to, to bring those programs together on a regular basis um, to build their capacity to do the work that they want to do, right? To, uh, to, to do training and to support them so that they're strong organizations, so they've got better impacts. Um, to connect them to work that's happening around the country. Uh, because as you all move around, you see there's, you know, in every major city, there, there are these initiatives around boys of color. There are organizations that have been doing that work. Uh, and the more connected we are to that work, the better we're going to be able to do it. 
um, to, to, to organize uh, common ways to assess the impact that they're having. Um, philanthropy, uh, public resources, uh, all have some of the same challenge around, okay, uh, yeah, I'm going to be maybe begrudgingly give you, you know, less money than you really need. And then, but you still have to tell me, you know, what good work you're doing uh, and then tell it to me in the way that I really want to hear it. Not the, the way metrics. that you think. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> right. So uh, one of the things that BMOST has done uh, and we're, we're, we're about to, to, to pilot it with a larger group of organizations is create what we call a common assessment tool. So it's just is leveraging, te- leveraging technology to make it easy for programs to say, here's how many guys we had, here's how much time we spent with them, here's how much difference it made with them academically, here's how much difference it made with them socially, here's how much difference it made with them in terms of community service to quantify those things so they can report back uh, and also so they can do you know continuous quality improvement in their own programming, right? So BMOS has been organized to do that work. And so uh, uh, WRF, we've been supporting BMOS and BMOS is, uh, nonprofit organizations. It's some of our higher education institutions in the city. Uh, Little Rock is is unique and blessed. Uh, we're one of few uh, municipalities. Uh, there are actually two HBCUs right here in Little Rock. They actually share a footprint. Uh, we've got one right across the river uh, in North Little Rock. That's really a stone's throw from right where we're sitting right now. Uh, and then we've got one down the road, the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, that's about 30 miles down the road. So we've got some higher ed partners that are there too. And Obviously, their their stake in the game uh, is that we want to close the gap between what happens in community and on the college campus. So these young men that we're working with in community can go right into Philander Smith College. It can go right into Arkansas Baptist College and have sort of a conduit of programming that's working there. So the, the question was about how does philanthropy support and work? So that's one way. It actually, you know, in, in helping create an environment where the the folks on the ground doing the direct service work can do their best work. Uh, obviously, we don't have the resources to fund every direct service program out there, but what we're trying to do is create the umbrella, again, that creates an environment where they can do their work better and we can get other people, the city, other philanthropies, national philanthropy to come and invest in, the, in those folks. Um, and so that that's one way. Can I just yeah. ask you yeah. one question? Um, and, and I know I asked about the limitations. Um, I'm just extremely interested in, in uh, the BMOST model. Yeah. Are you talking to other jurisdictions about replication? Because I, I was having a conversation with um, a number of people who are involved in social services that were really talking about their frustrations about having to you know, worry and focus about, you know, a 33 question, you know, grant report, um, trying to respond to the particular, you know, aspects of how a grant maker um, wants to measure success. And that not only um, creates anxiety and frustration, but I also think that it's, it's stymies, um, uh, innovation. Absolutely. So, what are, what are your yeah. thoughts about um, talking to other philanthropies sure. and other jurisdictions uh, about the successes of this? Particularly, the 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 assessment tool yep. could be of tremendous benefit to organizations. So, every everything that we do uh, is is ultimately about public policy. 
So the, 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 the purpose of sort of even creating BMOST here in a specific location uh, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation helped us get it going uh, was really to do what you're asking, right? Is to let's, let's prove out a model that, that, we can, that we can then take and propagate in other places. So, so even as we created the central Arkansas BMOST, we're thinking in our heads, well, we need a northwest Arkansas BMOST, uh, where in northwest Arkansas, uh, the, the population of color is more Latinx young men, right? We need a Northeast Arkansas. We need a Delta BMO. So, so absolutely, as we prove out the model and, and even as we prove out some pieces of the model, like the assessment system, we're going to be rolling those out. So there's national work, too, and we benefit from this. Um, the Executive Alliance to Expand Opportunity for Boys and Men of Color uh, is, uh, is again, it's an organization of foundations, uh, the, the biggest five or 10, plus about 20, 25 other small guys like us uh, that have been working together over the last five years to, to do them, to learn from each other, to learn what we're, from each other what we're doing philanthropically, but also to learn from different communities. So not only do we have sort of a conduit for propagating it here in Arkansas, uh, but we've also got a much bigger umbrella that, that reaches into national philanthropy. And you name one of the big ones, they're part of the, uh, of the executive committee of, of, of the executive alliance. But we've got this uh, conduit to reach up and, and we're, all, we're pulling down knowledge, we're pulling down learning, uh, but also giving back to this bigger group. Well, here's what's working in a place like Little Rock. That, that's sort of Southern, sort of Midwestern, right? Um, you know, Arkansas, Arkansas as a state is probably, it's, it's at least three different places. Uh, um, uh, demographically, uh, we're, we're totally different than the rest of the South uh, because uh, our population of color is actually really small. I was it's so surprised. 17, 18% total. That's black folks, Latinos, Asians, and, and the rest is white in the state. Um, now, uh, economically, <laughs> we're, we're much like the rest of the South, right? And that's whether you're black, white, or otherwise. Um, but uh, the, the delta of the state is like Mississippi, Louisiana. Uh, Northwest Arkansas is like the Ozarks. Uh, Northeast Arkansas is kind of Midwesterny because it's more like Missouri and the, the high parts of Tennessee. So, you know, we're, we're, we work statewide, so, so we're aware of the different contexts that we have to work in depending on where we are in the state. Uh, but there's also this idea that if, if we can figure out and I'll take this back to a system level conversation um, because we resist this sort of, uh, 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 I'll say the word wrong, but uh, pat, patholo pat, pathologizing, right? Uh, uh, black boys or Latino boys or poor kids, like we resist that. Um, but the idea is if, if we can figure out how the, the populations that are are getting the least out of our existing systems uh we can figure out how to turn those systems in a way that that those populations uh begin to thrive more uh begin to connect more then that's going to be good news for everybody so if our listeners want to find out more about be most can they go to the foundation's website or is there you, you can go to our foundation's website, www.wrfoundation.org. Terrific. I'll be going to that website after 
this interview is is over because I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, y- you did talk about um, gang violence and the origins of that. Um, one of the things we talk about at NYU McSilver is the trauma of poverty mm-hmm. and the impact it has on particularly black and brown people, sure. but particularly for black boys. We talk about how that trauma can manifest mm-hmm. itself. And our executive director, Dr. Michael Lindsay, has been doing a lot of research in this area. And one of the things that he has found is that right now in the United States, black boys between the ages of 5 and 11 have some of the fastest growing rates of suicide in the United States, which to me is alarming because I think, one, the perception is like, as black people, we, we do not, suicide is not, you know, something mm-hmm. that happens in our community. Yep. And, and some people think about, well, what what would be so bad in a sure. kid's life that sure. they would take their lives um, at the age of 5 and 11? But the research is showing it's happening with more frequency. Uh, we've seen recent cases of um, young black boys who are being racially uh, bullied sure. who are committing um, suicide. Some were involved in um, victims of the mass shooting, mm-hmm. one of them. Um, sadly um, committed suicide. What can philanthropy do to respond to this? Well, you know, one of the things that we've been talking more about, and again, it's it's about taking a a much more holistic approach to closing these gaps, uh, is obviously, you know, the the role that the mental health system uh, or or the lack thereof uh, plays in... uh, the it plays in how the, the the metrics that we typically look at play out, right? So we're always looking at grades. We're always looking at crime rates. We're always looking at our, at those sorts of things uh, again without paying sufficient attention to uh, the systems that that we all either benefit from or are ignored by uh, that 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 lend themselves that lend that then lends to uh, negative or less than satisfactory outcomes. So, so we're looking more at mental health. Um, uh, the other thing uh, that, that has, again, helped open my eyes up uh, recently um, is the work that's being done around adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and and, and, and in, that, in, in that space where, uh, I think to your question, where, 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 where health care providers, mental health care providers, human services providers, education providers, uh, philanthropy, uh, government, where those were, where, where this intersection of folks that just hadn't intersected before uh, have all been able to come together uh, around understanding again that 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 what we ought not be doing uh, is 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 blaming really anybody uh, at, at a particular level for the circumstances that they find themselves in and how they respond to those circumstances without a sufficient investigation of how those circumstances came to be. Uh, my wife runs a school uh, here in Little Rock. It's called Scholar Made Achievement Place. Uh, and it's a public charter school. Uh, it's community-based, lots of kids there walk. Um, uh, you know, High population of low-income kids, uh, high population of African-American uh, kids. And, and, and she, she, about once a week, uh, you know, there's a story of of a young person, uh, and it's it's, they're most, it's mostly elementary school kids now, 
but of a young person just acting out in a way that that they just can't figure out, right? That it doesn't have anything to do with what happened in school. Uh, sometimes it has something to do with what happened in the community. Uh, and and her and, and the work that she does with her staff to say, you know, yes, Johnny wrote on the wall, um, but before you put Johnny out because of the way that he responded to you chastising him for writing on the wall, you know, let's take a couple steps back and ask a couple whys. So why did he respond that way? Well, he probably didn't like my tone of voice. Well, why didn't he like your tone of voice? And and you have to do, you know, those three or four whys uh, in order to really get to root causes. And when you talk about, I mean, this, this I, I had not heard that statistic about suicide among really young men, but it's also not surprising to me. Um, you know, when you, when we, again, just back to this question about narrative, right? When you consider um, the images, the, 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 the frequency with which now young people in general uh, are, are inundated with, with imagery uh, and narrative uh, that's just not healthy mentally for anybody, and then take away or, or, or never even provide uh, any of the, you know, sort of the mental health bumpers or resiliency factors that, that, that adults have, right, uh, or, or that other people with resources have, then it's not surprising to me that, that the level, that, that hopelessness is getting younger and younger. Yes. Uh, you know, whatever it was 30 years ago when I worked with young people as a young person, you know, Young people, you say, oh, gosh, if I, you know, if I make it to 25, I'm really doing something, right? It does not surprise me that that is getting younger and younger. I mean, young people are so quickly and easily now inundated with these narratives where prior to the Internet that we're going to talk on, you know, prior to all of those things, they had been at least insulated, right? You, you, could, you could at least control the amount uh, and, and the scope and scale of a narrative where it maybe it was just what was in your house uh, or just what was in your community. But now, you know, it, it, it's, 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 on, you can, it, it's just you can touch a, a screen. It's, it's there for you. There is a steady stream of seeing young men and boys that look just like you yes. that are being gunned down in the streets, that are being over-disciplined in school. And yes. I, I, I'm really thankful for the work that your wife is doing yeah. at this school because thinking about things from the perspective of ACEs, but also being trauma-informed. Absolutely. Right? And yeah. and there needs to be a larger conversation about black boys from the perspective of trauma because the last yeah. way that we talk about black boys, we say, you know, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking yeah. about other people. Absolutely. Aggressive, you know, uh, always need to be disciplined, but no one wants to think about what are the root causes yep. of that. And certainly at McSilver, our goal is to do a lot more um, work in this regard. But it sounds like Arkansas is doing some really exciting things, not only under your leadership and certainly around uh, how people are collaborating. You have a new mayor that is also thinking boldly um, about sure. changing the narrative. Right. So I am so grateful 
to you, Corey, for being here today and uh, best of luck. And I'm um, looking you. forward to reviewing uh, all the work that's happened with BMOST and continued success. You've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at nyumcsilver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.